I'm Helen Skelton, and you're listening to the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. In this podcast series, I'm finding out about the amazing ideas, technology, innovation, and individuals that are making our energy supply sustainable and green. What does that mean? It means making sure that when powering our homes, vehicles, businesses, and lifestyles, we avoid burning fossil fuels that release carbon into our atmosphere and add to global climate change. And in places where carbon is released, we need to find ways of cancelling it out. That all adds up to net zero carbon. Oh, and Parliament has made it law to get there by 2050. There's just so much disruptive technology. It's not a sprint or a marathon, and we only get there when we all cross the line together. When you look at the changes needed to get to net zero, it may seem like a tall order. But thanks to science and engineering, work is underway. And it really is going to happen for all of us. We covered the basics last time. Now it's time to get stuck into transport. This is the biggest change in transportation since we went from horses to vehicles. Transport plays a big role in individual lives, industry, trade and commerce. It stretches from cars and vans to buses, shipping, rail and air travel. And all of these different sectors connect. That means it's vital that all of us are along for the ride. Since 1990, greenhouse gas emissions have soared. That's in spite of growing understanding of their impact on our planet. In 2018, transport was contributing to 28% of the UK's domestic greenhouse gas emissions. Second to that was our energy supply at 23%. And that doesn't even include aviation. Fortunately, it's getting cleaner and greener. But there's still work to do. Today, we're going to find out why petrol heads are becoming electroheads in the UK. We'll hear how that extends to shipping and air, which plays such a big role in trade and leisure travel. And we'll find out why it's urgent for us to cut emissions well ahead of that 2050 goal, not just for the environment, but for human health. This dirtiness, this pollution is actually impacting their health and it affects all of us. It does tend to be some sectors of our communities are more affected than others, disproportionately so. The fact is, with no new petrol or diesel cars and vans being made after 2030 in the UK, we are going to need a lot more electricity to help us get around in the future. Whether that's for charging electric cars or creating green hydrogen or biofuels, the UK needs to build lots of new wind farms, many of which will be offshore. And it has to bring wind power from the North Sea onshore, enough to power 19.5 million homes. What's more, National Grid needs to lay 12,000 linear kilometres of line conductor to connect everything up. And just like any other organisation, it also has to make sure the vehicles, vans and lorries in its own fleet are zero carbon. I'm joined by the person whose job it is to oversee that, so she is an expert on the decarbonisation of cars, vans and other vehicles. Lorna McAteer, thank you for joining us. Lorna, you're a fleet manager for National Grid. Talk us through what your job involves. One of the things I have in my fleet is cars, I have vans and I have heavy goods specialist vehicles, so I have a whole array in there, including a couple of helicopters. 
What's the helicopter for? They check all the overhead lines. Makes sense when you think about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I joined, one of the first things I had to do was put in place our fleet net zero strategies for 2030. And that's what I did. I haven't specifically said I'm going electric vehicles. I've said I will use whatever I need. That could be hydrogen. That could be electric. It could be any other technology that we haven't even thought of yet that might come down the line. How do I educate my drivers? How do I get them on that journey with me? How do I do it that's cost effective for the company? That's kind of what being a fleet manager is. So in the next 10 years, what are you going to do? So absolutely everything. So some of the things in my plan are as simple as when the next vehicle replacement comes around, do I replace it now or do I leave it? Because actually it's got another life cycle before I need to change it. I'm not going out and say, I must change everything tomorrow, find me a vehicle. So some of the vehicles I have on fleet, there is no alternative at the moment. But I have faith that in a few years' time, there will be. When it comes to the vehicles we use and own personally, there are lots of myths that you know, it would be useful to clear up. For starters, people worry about battery life and charging. So what would you say to that? One of the things we need to bear in mind, very simply, is what do you use it for? Buy your vehicle and make your choice based on what you do the majority of the time. There are some great vehicles that have really long and extended ranges. The downside of those, depending on your home charging situation and whether you can or can't, or whether you're relying on the rapid charge network that's out there, is how long it takes to charge those batteries. And when you're looking at smart technology that you can demand manage and only charge vehicles when the grid is at its quietest or when you're not using anything at any other point in time. So it can manage and balance things for you going forwards. So if you're on a long distance journey and you stop halfway through to charge up for the other half, how long do you imagine a typical family would be charging that car up for? I did joke about it and I put a post on LinkedIn actually that actually took us longer to order. It was a KFC but there rather are available. Um, We happen to take longer to order it and eat it and get the kids back to the car than it did for the car to charge. So what you're looking is between 40 odd minutes to an hour if you really want to get all the way back up on your charging. So other than getting its own house in order, what are the other roles National Grid can play in helping the UK decarbonise transport? We also want to lead by example. So there's my element of playing into that because when we're having conversations with people and we're trying to influence people or we're trying to talk about Project Rapid, which is the motorway service area upgrade and getting rapid charging points to each of those in the UK, then it's easier to influence and understand when you know what those day-to-day problems are that people are facing. Lorna, thank you so much for that insight there. Really appreciate your time. For lots of people, just getting their head around plugging the car into charge will be a big change. But National Grid is working away to make sure that one thing you won't have to worry about is having enough power. We're going to get into electric cars and vehicles a bit more in a minute, but before we do that, let's find out a bit more about why it is in all of our interests to make that change as soon as we can. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined now by Andrea Lee, the Campaigns and Policy Manager for Clean Air from Client Earth. Hi there, Andrea. Hi. So tell me a bit about Client Earth, what it's all about. 
We are a charity that uses the power of the law to protect the health of people and the planet. Because for us, really, those two things are inextricably linked. So we've talked in this episode about how the decarbonised transport sector will make a difference to environments. But I'm hoping you can unpack for us a bit about the impact on human health as well. So the UK has illegal and harmful levels of air pollution. We're focusing on a pollutant called nitrogen dioxide. And from the government's own accounts, where there are illegal levels of air pollution, up to 80% of the problem comes from road transport. People are exposed to these emissions every day. And there are also other types of pollutants, such as particulate matter pollution, that are also generated by vehicles. One of the biggest impacts is actually through cardiovascular disease. So things like triggering heart attacks, triggering strokes. Also, it does things that trigger asthma attacks and makes the risk that those asthma attacks will increase the risk of hospitalisation or even worse. We all kind of think, oh, cars, oh, they're not great for the environment. But I suspect there's a lot of people who don't appreciate the direct impact on us as individuals, our health. Yes, I think if you ask people living in towns and cities, you know, what do you think about the quality of the air? They don't want re- realise that this dirtiness, this pollution is actually impacting their health. What it's doing is, is, is shortening their lives. Children who, for example, their bodies are developing, air pollution in the UK has been shown to stunt lung growth. It affects older people who are more prone to having chronic illnesses. And it's not impacting everybody equally, is it? There was a study by the University of West of England a couple of years ago that really highlighted how people from lower household incomes not only are exposed more to higher levels of air pollution, but they are actually uh, responsible for less of it. So they tend to not own um, as many cars. They also, when they do own a car, they don't tend to own diesels because they're more expensive for them to buy. They also tend to use their car less. They do tend to live in the cheaper housing that will be on, on busier roads. And yeah, it's showing real inequalities and how people are being affected. Public Health England suggested that local authorities could tackle the problem by promoting low emission vehicles, increasing facilities for charging electric vehicles, promoting green public transport and introducing clean air zones. Are these suggestions, in your view, enough? Those suggestions are a very good start, but the problem is quite big and it needs a lot of solutions. Uh, We do see things like clean air zones as key to the problem. So we've got the London Ultra Low Emission Zone, which came in in 2019 and has already been shown to really have an impact of on levels of air pollution there. We've seen clean air zones now popping up in Bath and Birmingham, and we hope to see more in other cities. Leeds is trying. Leeds is trying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we would also like to have seen one in Leeds, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, in addition to these sort of restrictions, because we do need to urgently get these these vehicles off the roads, you you do need to provide help and support for people, and that's where you know you do need national policy levers um, that make it easier for people to use cleaner forms of transport and also businesses. You're right, businesses, local authorities, organisations have a lot to think about. They're probably sitting there thinking, yes, in theory, I'd like clean air zones, I'd like everybody to be in an electric car, I'd like everybody to be on an electric bus, but the practicalities are very different. Who's doing what and what needs to happen now to make sure local authorities can actually take effective steps to bring down air pollution? 
There are local authorities that are showing the way. So Bath was the first city to get a clean air source, which is great. Um, obviously, before that, London was leading the way with the ultra low emission zone that came in in 2019. That's going to be expanded in October this year. They also have done a lot of work cleaning up the bus fleet and are providing things like scrappage schemes for people and businesses to be able to scrap polluting the more polluting cars and use cleaner alternatives. At the moment, what we've seen is a lot of passing the buck. So, you know, the UK government has the biggest policy levers. It needs to be set in that strategy for local authorities and for businesses. Andrea, thank you so much. Brilliant insight there. There are lots of questions to be answered before some sectors can move forwards. Not least how changes to infrastructure, technology and operations end up affecting people. Imagine the busiest road in your area during rush hour. If you live in a town, then it's likely you're picturing traffic jams and idling engines. Not the kind of environment that you'd want to expose yourself or your family to. It's good to know there are already policies in practice to clean up our towns and communities. Earlier on, Lorna mentioned a few ways that National Grid itself is helping connect and decarbonise transport. It already directly supplies our rail network, Lorna also mentioned ideas for charging hubs, and that's what I want to find out more about right now. Shipping is essential for imports, exports, domestic trade and leisure. But energy is vital to keep this sector moving. In turn, some cruise liners can now generate enough energy to power a small town. And the clean energy revolution stretches to shipping. It's funny to think that ships were once all powered by the wind even if it was only in their sails. Then, fossil fuel burning engines took over. In 2019, the first hybrid electric-powered cruise ship took to the water using lithium-ion batteries. Now, companies around the world are starting to operate fully electric cargo ships powered by batteries that are switched over in port. That's goodbye to belching emissions and rumbling diesel engines. Our ports themselves are essential arteries in supply, trade and connectivity. They're a regular stopping point for HGVs, making their onward journeys, and they're right by the sea, where offshore renewables find their way back onto land and onto our grid through high-power subsea cables. Ports have high-power electricity on tap, making them great spots for charging. Another idea is that you could create hydrogen distillation sites at ports, allowing hydrogen-powered HGVs to recharge. We'll get into hydrogen technology a little more in the next episode, but I wanted to chat about why ports, shipping and the maritime sector has such a huge role to play. These locations could become a real hotspot for the innovation and integration of renewable energy in the UK system but there are definitely some topics still up for debate. I spoke to Ben Murray, Chief Executive of Maritime UK, and Mark Simmons, Director of Policy at the British Ports Association, to find out more. Thank you so much for chatting to me, guys. Mark, let's start with you. Can you tell me how you're already seeing tech evolve towards decarbonisation in the shipping sector? Always my main observation is that things are moving so quickly over the last five years that the pace of change has, has been incredible. We are starting to see 
lots of exciting investments in ports across the UK, where they're investing in more electrified equipment, where that's viable. Other ways of decarbonising both port equipment on the land side, but also their, their own vessels as well. And so we're starting to see lots more uh, things like that, which is really exciting. Ben, ports are really important in connecting with other kinds of transport, aren't they? Are things moving as fast there? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's also the case across the rest of maritime. You've got propulsion technology. So if you look at cars, by and large, you've got electrification being the primary solution. Yes, you've got hydrogen solutions, and particularly on the, the heavier vehicle side. But for, for maritime, the solution isn't as clear cut, which means we're at this point where lots of different innovators, universities, companies, ports, others, all working together to look at what the solution might be. You know, smaller vessels might lend themselves and do lend themselves to electrification. Larger vessels, you're looking at things like vessel efficiency playing a big role. You're looking at wind-assisted propulsion. You're looking at hydrogen and ammonia. But whilst all this is happening, you've got the the steady march of regulation and targets from which is which is right because we're not going to get there unless we have that imperative to do so but we're making some progress in terms of government and others realizing the role that maritime plays in decarbonizing the rest of the economy so what factors are at play in transitioning the maritime sector i think the thing that's perhaps slightly different about maritime and shipping is the the international dimension um because ships move from different jurisdictions, it's a very global sector and the regulation of that is therefore on a global basis in terms of the UN's regulatory body for maritime, which is in London, and the IMO, the International Maritime Organization. You're also starting to get companies like IKEA and, and others who, who are starting to demand those who operate in their supply chain are doing better on emissions. There is pressure coming now from retailers and, and other, other big shippers as well. So that, that, I think, will also have an impact. Mark, what sort of contribution does shipping currently make to global carbon emissions? I think shipping currently accounts for something somewhere between 2 and 4% of global um, greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, it sounds like it's a lot. It is by far the most carbon efficient way to move freight. So it would be many times more tons of carbon going into the atmosphere if you were driving that across across Asia and, and Europe. A lot of shipping companies have made uh, efficiencies, something we always point out to policymakers in that it is in ship owners' interests to make their ships more efficient because it saves them money because fuel is not cheap. Um, it, it's a big part of the, the costs of, of moving anything. So it, it's in everyone's interest to make shipping more efficient. And I think in, in the short term, that's going to play, play a big role in helping further reduce greenhouse gas emissions from shipping. Just before we finish, if you had to pick one innovation that you are most excited about, what would it be? There are some fantastic projects, which are not just infrastructure focused, that are, are in development around the UK. And, and they're incredibly exciting. You, you, we've worked closely with a consortium in Belfast to develop what will be the world's first hydrofoil and net zero ferry. And that's incredibly exciting technology. It's taking technology from Formula One and from competitive sailing into a commercial application. A lot of your big ships need a lot of juice, as you're probably not surprised to hear. So a lot of ports in the UK and elsewhere are looking at how you can basically build generation and storage in, in the port and whether or not 
you might have offshore renewables generating and some, some really interesting projects going on there, not just on wind, but uh, generating power that is converted to hydrogen to power ships at birth or power them on their voyage. Ports in future are likely to become energy hubs. Ports being places where cables come ashore or or hydrogen is, is, is made or, or other fuels or electricity are generated. In some cases, ships may be even u- being used as batteries where the grid needs to put power into ships, but they might need to take it away from them and, and use them to power other things if, if they're at birth overnight, for example. Well, from across the port to across the pond now, and the northeast United States. Over there, the transport sector accounts for 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. So there's an enormous challenge to overcome. National Grid looks after electricity and gas supply in the northeast US, so has a crucial role to play in making sure that businesses and developers have all the clean energy they need to support a green transition in transport. Julia Gold is the Principal Strategy and Policy Analyst for Clean Transportation. She joins me now. Julia, that is quite a title. What does that involve? Well, it's, it is an exciting job. You know, I get to think about the big picture. What do we provide to our customers to help them participate in this transition to clean transportation? The whole sector is going to transform in the coming decades. And that means not only changes with our infrastructure and huge investments that are needed, but then also a complete shift in how we as communities look to transportation and our own behavior has to shift. Let's talk about those people because this change, this transition is happening because of poor air quality and it's affecting people disproportionately, isn't it? Yes, incredibly. Air quality impacts a large portion of our customers on a daily basis. So people of color in the Northeast US where we we serve our customers are exposed to about 30% more air pollution than white residents. So this disproportionate impact goes back to historical trends in how transportation was set up in our communities. It leads to poorer health outcomes, as you mentioned, reduced performance in school for children, increased hospitalizations. But it also means that we have a duty and a great opportunity to completely change the way these populations are impacted. So whereabouts is the Northeast US on the journey to clean transport? A lot of momentum that's going on right now. You know, I think the Northeast, the the states that we serve, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, are some of the leading states in the country. Um, Things are are really gaining momentum, but still EVs only account for about 2%, 2 2-3% of the new vehicle sales in the US. So we have a long way to go, but... A lot is going to happen in the next few years and the coming decades, but we see big changes in the near future, which means a lot of work to do in the near future as well. Electric cars have become a lot more trendy and a lot more acceptable and a lot more in vogue over here. Would it be fair to say that obviously you have a bigger country, you travel longer distances and a lot of people have bigger cars. Is that part of the thing that you have to overcome? That is definitely a key challenge. A lot of Americans drive larger cars. You know, one of the most popular cars that's sold in the US is the pickup truck or SUVs. And up until recently, there really weren't that many SUV or truck options. But just this year, we've got a lot of new SUVs coming to the market. And I think that having more customer choice is going to really help shift that market 
when consumers start to see those options on the lot. That's kind of personal choice. So we talked about personal behaviours. It sounds like working with local authorities is going to be important in order to understand the needs of different communities and ultimately getting that transition over the line. Yeah, I think there's a mix. So it's both, you know, working with cities and towns to make sure that their residents and their workers are supported with public charging where it's needed. The other thing that is so critical is recognizing the diversity of housing types within our communities. And so we have cities and towns we serve where a lot of people who live in them have their own garage and can get an EV pretty easily and do the majority of their charging at home. Well, we have other communities that have much higher percentages of multifamily dwellings, apartment buildings, condos, denser urban environments, where those community-based solutions where we work with the cities and towns that have public charging or on-street charging, those are going to be the solutions that are at some point a little bit more difficult, but really important. A lot of British people have historically said that cost is the barrier to having an EV. Is that the same in America? That is also a key barrier. So I think a lot of the barriers I've been pointing to are the ones where we can have an impact and have a role to play. Cost is one where it is more tricky. We don't control the cost of the vehicles, but we can control and help to reduce the cost of charging, make it easier to access that charging. That's also why we're looking to make sure that we have clean transportation choices for everybody, where it's electrifying school buses, transit buses, making sure that every community is served with different types of electric vehicles so everyone benefits. We're looking at providing incentives and rebates across the board. So residential customers, fleet customers, providing that support for everyone that needs it to make it easier, make that transition easier for them. Thank you, Julia. So good to chat to you. Now to aviation. The UK's international emissions from international aviation have more than doubled since 1990. On the other hand, Domestic aviation emissions are a relatively small part of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions. To tackle the UK's huge contribution to international greenhouse gas emissions through aviation, the government's backing the development of sustainable biofuels, hybrid and electric aircraft. But just like shipping and maritime, this is a sector that stretches across countries and needs real international collaboration too. The UK is at the forefront of developing world-class technology to support this. And this summer, we'll be home to a world record-breaking attempt in electric aviation. We found out how Rolls-Royce is looking to break 300 miles per hour with the Spirit of Innovation aircraft. Hi, I'm Matthew Parr, and I'm the Customer Business Director for Rolls-Royce Electrical. As Rolls-Royce, when we think about the, the, the challenge of sustainability, really we focus in three areas. So, so we focus on improving the jet engine, but we also invest in sustainable aviation fuels. So we think about alternative fuels that, that the engines could run on. And then the third area we focus is in disruptive technology. And, and electrification is one of those disruptive technologies that really offers significant advantages in the next five to 10 years. But equally, we look at other fuels such as hydrogen and how might they start to play roles in aircraft as well. Rolls-Royce have been pioneers in aviation for the last 100 years. And when we when we look forwards, we're going to be pioneers in the next 100 years. That's a focus on sustainability. For Rolls-Royce, for, for our engineers, for our scientists, we are 
fundamentally now focused on how we produce those technology breakthroughs to go away and enable net zero by 2050. But the key part of this is, is putting together the world's fastest electric aircraft. So in this program, we brought together specialists from, from automotive, from motorsports, from aerospace into one team to focus on that one challenge of how do we develop an electric propulsion system that is powerful enough to propel the aircraft at 300 plus miles an hour, have enough energy to keep it in the air while it does that course. Technology is not just about going fast. That technology is actually the technology that you need to go enable the sort of future aircraft that we, that we, we all fly in. So when you think about urban air mobility, which is this new exciting air taxi market where, where aircraft take off from the top of buildings and, and travel around cities, the, the power demands you need to get one of those aircraft to take off and hover is actually not too dissimilar to the power demands of pushing our, our spirit of innovation electric aircraft through the air at tremendous speeds. So there are three really big technology challenges to go into go break a, a world speed record. I mean, the first one is how do you get enough power on board to go to go fast enough? And then the second one is, is, is really around the battery. How do you keep the battery cool enough? So how do you, how do you ensure that while you're dissipating all this heat out into your powertrain and pushing your aircraft really fast, that you don't overheat a battery? A lot of our technology focus has been into thermal management. How do you monitor the batteries you go, go, go through as well? But equally, there's been a third challenge of just how do you, how do you integrate all of this together into one aircraft, one package? And we've got 6,000 cells in our battery box, which is a phenomenal number. The current record is 210 miles an hour, and we're looking to go 300 plus. So we're looking to go get a record that stands for a very long time. We see a really positive future for the electrification of aerospace. So by 2025, we think you are going to see these air taxis, these urban air mobility, vertical takeoff and lift aircraft in your neighborhood. They're going to start off moving people between cities. So, so how could I go from London to Birmingham? Those sorts of routes using regional airports that we already have have in the UK and, uh, and leveraging those as, as, as hubs so people can come and get on and off the aircraft. And we're also going to see sort of nine-seater aircraft, fully electric versions of those aircraft. So the, the technology is ready today to enable fully electric aircraft to, to be flying on commercial routes. When we start to look a bit further, sort of 2030, then we'll start to see slightly bigger aircraft most likely using hybrid systems where they combine an electric propulsion system with a gas turbine to, to support the long, longer range. But when we think about the aircraft that we're all used to traveling on, maybe on holiday, the sort of 150, 200 seater aircraft, what we're talking about there is, is how do we start to use sustainable aviation fuels? Thank you, Matthew. I cannot wait to look up and know that kind of amazing tech is helping people get from A to B without emissions. We've talked a lot about changing our transport and fueling systems and all the tech innovation that's on offer to make that happen. We've also found out about why it matters so much to make it happen fairly for communities. If you're not an electric vehicle owner yourself, then you might be considering it especially since the government announced its 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution last year, which included ending the sale of new petrol and diesel cars and vans. We've been readying ourselves for a future where the vehicles we drive are powered by renewable sources. Graham Cooper is Head of Future Markets. 
He spent 11 years as a wind farmer before he got fed up with the pace of infrastructure and wrote a complaint to National Grid. They ended up offering him a job to help sort it out and he joins us now. Graham, that is quite a story. You say that you're a reformed petrol head. What does that mean? Oh, that's a really difficult one. So I grew up really loving cars, right? Um, when I passed my driving test, I've had every kind of sort of GTI, 16 valve, turbo nutter, everything. But when working in the wind industry, it kind of felt really, really out of sorts. It didn't feel compatible that I was doing something highly polluting and then working in something that was trying to prevent pollution. So I tried a Nissan Leaf, one of the early Nissan Leafs. And you know what? I changed my commute into London from £36 a day train ticket to less than £2 in electricity. And I came away from that thinking, wow, this changes everything. Now I drive a different electric car. I guess I'm a car head now, not a petrol head. We've come so far since the early days of the Nissan Leaf. I remember trying one and you couldn't find a charging point. And when you did plug it in somewhere, people kept unplugging it. But I feel like even though that wasn't that long ago, we've come a long way since then. And I guess in your job, you are literally always looking to the future. What are the big issues facing you in your role? I'm responsible for getting 30 gigawatts of offshore wind connected by 2030. Now, that's an awful lot of energy, and that alone will pretty much get cars electrified. We'll see the growth in renewable energy, and we'll see the growth of cars to match that. And then what you'll see is smart charging. So the cars will charge when the grid is cleanest and cheapest. However fast we all get into electric cars, there'll be the right wires. So that's what I'm trying to work on, is to try and get government, who've allocated some money, to be able to tell me to get on with putting the right wires in the right place. And that means there'll be future-proof capacity at every motorway service station in England so that you can have really fast charges. Let's talk about specifically green vehicles getting greener. Are they and how are green vehicles getting greener? Last year and this year, more electricity is made from clean sources than by burning stuff. So we're sort of halfway there. We're going to put you on the spot. I'm going to play a game. You've touched on the first one there. So I'll tell you a common consumer concern about electric vehicles. You've got 15 seconds to answer and convince us the future is electric. Are you ready? OK, I'm ready when you are. So the first one is the grid can't cope. We use energy at different times of the day and night. If you charge when it's spare, there's plenty of capacity already. And we're building new renewables, so there's going to be plenty of energy. The next one is the wires there will be enough wires in the right place at the right time. Next one, it's still dirty when electricity is powered by coal-fired power stations. Right, in the UK, I think we have one more coal-fired power station. It rarely runs and will be closed by 2024. So the grid is the cleanest it's ever been. So your electric car is clean to start with and getting cleaner on a daily basis. Electric cars are too expensive. Don't forget, we're still early adopters. The new anything is always a bit more expensive, right? The technology is getting cheaper. Battery costs are falling all of the time. And actually, already, electric cars' whole life cost is already the same as the petrol or diesel equivalent. The battery life is too short. Uh, right, so um, the warranty on my battery on my car is um, eight years and 100,000 miles. What you've got in an electric car is a very clever battery management going on and filling them up gently 
to make sure they look after their health. But hang on a minute, those batteries just end up in landfill and they're massive. Oh, no, rat, foul. I call foul on that one. The batteries that are going into cars, they'll outlive the useful life of the car. And when they've outlived the useful life of the car, they're designed to be taken apart and recycled and they're likely to be repurposed first. So there's a second life. I don't drive. Why do I care? For two reasons. Right, the first one is the planet. So the second benefit is air quality. So even if you're not old enough to drive or you can't afford a car, what do you think is powering the last mile delivery van bringing your internet shopping? Very good. Very good. And you even put your own sound effects in. (coughs) Thank you for myth busting. That's right. You are clearly... Practising what you preach, this is your work, this is your life. How can all of us take action to help make the transition happen? The first thing is travel less. Use less energy for travel. Then active travel. Walk. Don't jump in the car to go up the road to the shop. Use your right foot, left foot and repeat. Um, there are other ways of transport. You, know, you can jump on a bike now that has electrical assistance. And then public transport. At least the public transport is getting cleaner. So, again, think about how you travel. So as long as people just give one thought to how they eat, to how they heat, to how they travel, you can have small impacts. You don't need to do everything at once. If everybody makes a little change, it's amazing how quick that impact is start to be felt. Graham, you are a fascinating man and your energy is palpable. So thank you so much. We have covered so much in this episode. From the technology that's soon to be, if not already, in our streets and homes to the miles and miles of connecting infrastructure that's going to get that clean, renewable energy where it needs to go, enabling this transport revolution. There has never been a more exciting time for us to talk about the future of travel and the opportunities for technical innovation, international collaboration and new jobs and businesses are astounding. Even if you're not a techie person, just thinking about the impact we can make as a generation to create clean and healthy environments where we live is pretty empowering. And yes, there's loads that big business, governments and organisations are doing to make sure it's all possible, but as we've heard, our own role is vital too. We can engage with our local governments on these issues, we can buy electric or low carbon vehicles, and we can change our behaviour in small ways today so that we can be the ones who made a difference to tomorrow. I'm Helen Skelton, and next time on The Clean Energy Revolution, we'll be talking about hydrogen, including how it could be used to decarbonise our gas supply, both in our homes and in major industry. Here's where I'll be digging into the options and hopefully bringing a little clarity. Follow this podcast on your favourite app. In the meantime, you can find out more about the National Grid's work toward our clean energy future at nationalgrid.com. See you next time.